Welcome to the October 6th episode of the Enjoying the Bible podcast. I'm Matt Ellis, and I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Today's reading is Isaiah 26 and 27 and Philippians chapter 2, but we'll focus only on the New Testament in this podcast. Hopefully you're ready. Let's get started. All right, so let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2, and we've got about 30 verses in this chapter, so a verse a minute. Let's get started. Verse 1, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, there's a lot there, and I've preached through the book of Philippians before, and there's so much there that we could spend a lot of time on, but just suffice it to say that verses 1 and 2 say that if you have genuinely experience salvation, if Christ has really shown up in your heart in the person of the Holy Spirit and uh, you are saved, then strive for unity. You know, love one another, um, desire to live life together, united, you know, and, and clearly this is, this is talking about having the uh, attributes of patience and forgiveness and compassion, and love, and mercy, and all sorts of other things. He's just calling them to live life together. Uh, The instruction he's going to give them a little bit later on in the chapter leads us to believe that while this apparently was a really good church and they were sacrificially giving, it appears that there was some complaining and arguing going on in this church. Uh, It doesn't seem to be that big of a deal, but it, it was an issue that Paul was addressing. So he's saying, Strive for unity, guys. You know, love one another, have the same kind of love, you be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. And that's one of the things that I've also discovered is you can't just say, hey, let's be united. You have to be united about around something. Uh, a pastor can't just strive for unity in the church. If, if that's all he's doing, that's the end game and that's the only goal, he's never going to achieve it. Um, or a leader, if he's striving for unity, the way you get unity is you have something that you're all doing together. And that's that can be the catalyst. Not always, but it can be the catalyst. And so he says, not only united in spirit, but intent on one purpose. Have one purpose. Well, for the Apostle Paul, that purpose would be clear, the gospel that's what you are united around. We don't just experience unity. We unite around a purpose, around something that is perceived of value to everyone. And so that's that's what he's he's asking them to do. Verse three, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Okay. So you would think that he's not telling them, hey, don't be selfishly ambitious. Don't be conceited unless they're actually dealing with this, unless there's at least some people in the church that are evidencing uh, the sinful attitude, uh, the disposition of, of selfish ambition or conceit. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Don't do what you do because you want what you can get out of it, not caring about anybody else, and you think you're all that, you know, empty pride. But instead... 
in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Does that mean that others are more important than us? Does that mean that we're a doormat? No. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so there was an equality there. But what Paul is doing as he's writing to the church at Philippi, as the Holy Spirit is, is leading him, he is not saying that other people are more important than us. He is saying that y'all need, y'all, y'all are just, quite a few of you are just arrogant, you're proud, you're selfishly ambitious, you're conceited. And so, you know what, let's just kind of jump to the other extreme and start seeing other people as more important than you, you know? Um, I, I, Paul, there is no theology here that other people are more important than us. That's not what Paul is saying. He is just encouraging them to start seeing people as more important, and maybe they could strike a balance somewhere in the middle where they come to what Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, an equality. Verse 4, everyone should look not to his own interests. So once again, it seems like that was a problem here in the church. They were looking after their own ambitions. Uh, they, they were selfishly ambitious. They were looking after their own interests. He said everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interest of others. That's what the second greatest command is all about. Don't just focus on yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Focus on what they need. Focus on how it is that you can serve them and help them. Think of others. And then what he does in verses 5 through 11 is he says, okay, I'm just going for the the grand slam here. Uh, I have just told you to stop thinking so much of yourself. Start thinking of other people. Stop being conceited. Start being humble. And he said, now... I'm going to point to the best example of all, the best example of all. And so who do you think that would be? It's Jesus. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying the Christian life is not one where God sits up on his holy throne and looks down on us and just dictates and tells us what to do, but he hasn't lived it. No. God sent his son Jesus so that he could live among us, so that he knows what it's like here. And so Paul is now saying, oh, Jesus, the one who left heaven, came to earth. Of course, ultimately, his ultimate purpose was to provide redemption, to to provide salvation to everyone who would trust in him. But there's tons of secondary reasons, tons of secondary things that we can gather from Jesus' time with us, one of which is we can look at how he acted, look at how he behaved around others, looked at how he held himself, looked at how he talked. And uh, so what we see, what Paul was pointing to is said, look at him and look at his humility. Jesus was humble. And so he gets into what is um, within the Hebrew mind, it's, it's called a chiasm. A chiasm. Okay, so in the Greek alphabet, chi or key is the letter, our letter X. It looks just like an X. And so you have, if you could imagine in your mind's eye what the X looks like, that in, in the Greek alphabet, that's a key or a chi. Well, if you would imagine looking at that X in your mind's eye, if you look at the, you know, the, 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 the section, the bar on that X that goes up to the top right, okay? So you're up there at that point in your mind's eye, see it? So you go from that top point, and then you go to the center of the X. So you go down and to the left, to the center. And then from that center point, 
you go back out. You keep going down, but you go back out to the to the bottom right. So it's the top right goes to the center, then you go out to the right again. And so what that does is that shows how it goes in and then it comes out. That is a chiasm. And what a chiasm is in the Greek thought or Hebrew thought is you take something, it begins at one point, it goes to um, it goes to a point, a point, whatever that is, and then the rest of what you say about it goes back out again, right? And so what we're going to see in verses 6 through 8 is if you begin at the top of that X and you make your way in, what we see is Jesus, who is on his throne in heaven, on his throne in heaven, enjoying all the rights and privileges of deity, that he gives much of that up and he comes in on that ax and makes his way to the point to where that is the most humbling place that he ever could have been. And from that point, verses 9 through 11, we begin to see that Paul begins to take him down the rest of that X, the rest of that line, where now he's being exalted. Now he's being elevated again, right? So elevated down to utter humility, back to elevation. So let's look at this, okay? The attitude that we're to have that was in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who existing in the form of God. Now, we could you know, really dig into this. When we see form, we think, okay, he's just in the shape of God. And if we're not theologically astute, we might, from the rest of Scripture, we might say, okay, he's in the form of God, but maybe he's not equal to God. Well, the word for form here is it, 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 it's a word that when fitted in with everything else, it speaks to the fact that he is the one who represents God. He is the es in essence, he is uh, in essence God. Th that is within the Godhead and the Trinity. And this is something I'm going to be talking about uh, as you listen to this. If you listen to this on Thursday, then Thursday evening at First Baptist, and uh, you know you can watch it on our church website at 7 o'clock if the Wi-Fi is working well. Um, I'm going to be talking about the Trinity. And uh, as we talk about the Trinity, we're going to talk about how it is that the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all equally God. There are three persons and yet only one God, but they have different roles, but they are one God, and they are the same in essence. Different roles, different responsibilities, the same in essence. And so that is what the first part of verse 6 is, existing in the form of God, existing in essence as God, and the assumption is with all of its rights and privileges. The rest of verse 6, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or to be grasped. So what does that mean? That means that as the Father willed it, and that's the thing that we see, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Father is the one that always calls the shots. God the Son fulfills the role of Son and always follows along. He is equally God, but he follows along and submits to the Father's will. It always happens every single time in Scripture. God the Father calls the shots. God the Son, Jesus, follows along, obeys. And so it says, he, Jesus, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He didn't, he didn't say, I don't want to go, I don't want to go. And he you know, was saying, I don't want to give all my rights and privileges. No, he didn't see this equality with God as something to be held onto and grasped onto and, and not let go. So we see God willing Jesus to come, 
We understand that, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God the Father was the one who initiated that, but Jesus willingly came. And so what did he give up? Because we also uh, realize that some theologians call this the kenosis, the kenosis, that, that Jesus gave up much to come here to earth. What did he give up? One of the things we know for certain that he did not give up is he did not give up his deity. He did not give up his deity. What did he give up? I believe that as we look at uh, the whole of scriptures, as we look at the gospels, as we look at Paul unpacking what uh, the gospels are about and why it makes, you know, as he's making sense of it, uh, we realize that Jesus gave up many, most, of his rights and privileges as deity. Maintained his deity. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. Never was there a time that Jesus was not fully God. But when he was fully man here on earth, that he had given up many of his rights and privileges. Did you know that when Jesus was here on earth that he did not know everything? Did you know that? Some would say, oh, he's God. He knows everything. Well, yes, he's God, but it tells us here that he didn't consider equality with God something to, to be grasped onto in verse 7. Instead, he emptied himself. Well, what did he empty himself of? Many of the rights and privileges. Jesus did not know everything when he was here on earth. If you look in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, it says that Jesus, the young 12-year-old boy, grew in wisdom. If God in the flesh, if Jesus was a, as a baby and then as a 12-year-old knew everything, then it would be impossible for him to grow in wisdom, Luke 2.52. There's also another passage, I think it's in Mark, I forget the chapter and verse, but there's another passage where Jesus said that regarding the time that he was to come back, he said, the angels in heaven, neither does the Son of Man know when he's coming. Jesus said, even I don't know. That's because he gave up much that was rightfully his. He gave up his omniscience. He gave up his omnipotence. He gave up many of those things that were rightfully his maintaining his deity, and he lived his life out as fully man. And some would say, oh, really? He lived his life out as fully man? Well, what about the miracles? Well, just about every miracle that Jesus performed, or, or the types of miracles that Jesus performed, were performed by prophets in the Old Testament. You say, Jesus raised people from the dead. He raised three people. Yes, so did Elijah. Jesus was fully God like no one else who ever walked the face of the earth except for God as he walked through the, the garden in Genesis chapter um, 2 as he was spending time with Adam and Eve. But uh, Jesus was fully God, is fully God, but he lived his life out as fully man because he gave up many, most of his rights and privileges. Verse 7, he humbled himself. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had become a man, right, so he's humbling himself, he humbled himself even more. Verse 8, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. So remember the I said chiasm and I said imagine the X and you know the top right 
point and you take that point and come into the center of the X, well, that's what we have just done. We have read from verse 6 all the way through verse 8, we have seen Jesus who existed and exists in the form of God, but he, he laid aside many of his rights and privileges and he emptied himself. And he emptied himself, he humbled himself to, by coming to earth, by taking on the form of a man, not only by taking on the form of a man, but by being obedient even to the point of death, even to death on a cross. The Bible says in the Old Testament that anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. And so Jesus, at the end of verse 8, is the one who was bearing our curse, the one who God was taking his wrath out on as he paid our sin debt. And so with that chiasm, we are now in the center of the X to the lowest point, the lowest point of Jesus' ministry. But as with the chiasm, it goes in and then it goes out again. Now, beginning in verse 9 through verse 11, we see Jesus from that lowest point now being exalted. Verse 9, for this reason, what reason? Because he was willing to humble himself, to be fully obedient even to the death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what we see in verses 9 through 11 is that because Jesus was obedient to the point of death, offering himself as the substitute offering himself as that lamb that would take away the sins of the world, that anyone who looks to him and trusts will be saved. Because Jesus did that, he is once again in that exalted position as fully God, which he never was not fully God. He was always fully God. But now he's not in that humbled condition there on the cross. Now we see in verses 9 through 11 that he is on that throne. He is enjoying all of his rights and privileges. And now it is at his name that every knee will bow. Not just the saved, but even the lost at the great white throne will bow in reverence before they are sent to a place called hell. We will bow because we can't help but bow before the one who did so much for us. The lost will bow before because they can't help but bow before the one who is their maker, the one who is their judge. And as they bow before him, then they are consigned to a place called hell. We bow because we want to. They bow because they have to. The point is, is that Jesus is exalted. So this is the lesson of humility. Paul said, I want y'all to st stop being selfishly ambitious and conceited and, you know, strive for unity. Hey, follow Jesus' example. And then that's what he just gave. Look at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed. So he's just saying, hey, I know that y'all have listened to what I've said and you followed along just as you've always obeyed. So now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence while I'm not there, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's not saying work out your salvation so that you can be saved. That's not what he's saying. That, that is taught nowhere in the New Testament. What he's saying is, is your salvation is an internal thing. You're being born again. You having the Holy Spirit within you. All of that, that's internal. It, it's a new heart that you've been giving. 
but it's not necessarily outside of you. You can be saved inside and still have a little bit of a dirty mouth. You can be saved inside and still say things or do things you shouldn't be doing. All of us do. And so what he is saying is work it out to where what is inside of you affects everything outside of you, right? And so he said, get serious about sanctification. Get serious about becoming more like Jesus. Follow his example, not only in his humility, but in everything. Follow his example. Work your salvation that is inside your heart. Work it out so that it affects everything that people can see and hear. So we see in verse 12 that we bear responsibility for our sanctification, but there's a balance. There's always a balance in Scripture. There's God's part and there's our part. Well, our part is verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means be serious about it. God's part is the very next verse. For it is God, verse 13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And so if you didn't even read verse 12, verse 13 says, well, God's the one who's working in you in the person of the Holy Spirit to both will and to work. So if you have a desire to pursue sanctification, that's God putting that in you. If you, have, if you make good on that desire and you are cultivating uh, sanctification, that's God that's doing that. It's God who's working in you both to will and to work for his good purpose. And so it's God and you, God and me, that is responsible for us becoming more like Jesus. If there's any shortcomings, it's not God's fault because God is holy. He's pure. God will never, ever uh, put sin in our way with an intention of causing us to stumble. If we stumble into sin, it's not God's fault because God wants to cultivate in us a will to pursue sanctification and the working of making good on that. When we stumble into sin, it's our fault. We're, we're, we're messing up verse 12, our responsibility. Verse 14, now he gets back to the arguing again. <laughs> Do everything without grumbling and arguing. Quit grumbling and arguing. Quit complaining about your life and grumbling and then arguing with each other. Why? So that you may be blameless and pure. Children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Paul was concerned of not just how the Lord would see them on the day of judgment, but how they are seen in the world. So that, you know, he said, once again, verse 15, so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, so that you are, you are shining like a light because you are becoming more like Jesus. And so the difference between you and what comes out of your mouth and how you see and how you relate to other people, as opposed to how this crooked and evil world is, that it becomes that much more obvious. The closer you get to Jesus, the more different you are from the world around you, among whom you shine like stars in the world. And so Paul was saying, people are watching you. Lost people are watching you. Take your walk with Jesus seriously so that you can shine, so that your light would shine among men and they would see your good works and glorify God, right? And so Paul is saying it's not just about trying to be a good person. It's about you working out your salvation, 
God working out your salvation so that you are becoming more like Jesus. And then when the world sees that, they see that there's a difference. Doesn't mean everybody's going to be attracted to you. Jesus was infinitely perfect, and yet they killed him. But there were many that were drawn to him because they saw something in him that they did not have. And that's what Paul's saying. Church at Philippi, take your walk with Jesus seriously. Love one another. Quit focusing on yourself and serve each other. And as you do that, you will become, and as you cultivate humility that it allows you to love and serve others from a right heart with the right motive, then the lost world's going to look in and say, they've got something I don't have. Verse 16, by holding firm to the word of life. Okay, that word firm. Now, I don't know in your translation, I don't know what that word is, but it, it can be translated to hold firm or to hold out or to hold forth, you know? So it's like, are we holding firmly to the word of God or are we holding out the word of God? I think it's we're holding out. I don't think that the translation of the CSB, and, and once again, you know, these are translations, whatever translation you have, it is a translation uh, by men, women who translated uh, the scriptures uh, with the manuscripts as best they had and with to their to the best of their ability uh, did that. But just realize every now and then there there could be some word choices that are better. And I think in verse 16, it says to hold out the word of life. I think that's going back to verse 15, verses 14 and 15. Church at Philippi, if you are loving each other, if you are serving each other, if you are humbly exalting others as more important than yourself, and you are unified, then as you hold out the word of life, as you share the gospel with your neighbors... They're not going to mock you necessarily and say, oh, yeah, I, I see this gospel. Is it going to make me have all the turmoil y'all have down there at the church? They're not going to do that because there's not going to be turmoil at the church. They're going to say, oh, I've, I've heard about y'all. I don't really agree with maybe everything you believe, but, man, y'all just seem like you got it together. You know, that's, that's what Paul is talking about. Live in such a way that we don't undermine the gospel. The rest of verse 16, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. He said, you know, when Jesus comes back, then I don't have to worry about the fact that I wasted my time on you. You know, I'm going to realize that my time that I spent there in Philippi, as I led you to the Lord and then shared the message of sanctification with you, that I will realize that, uh, you know, that, I, that was time well invested with you when Jesus comes back. Verse 17, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. So the drink offering, if you look back in the Old Testament, the law books, the drink offering was wine and it would be poured over after the burnt offering had pretty much been consumed or the grain offering pretty much consumed, the wine would be poured out, the drink offering poured on that. And, you know, you could imagine that when you put water onto fire, something that is just so hot, you can hear that, you know, the, the, the sizzle and then maybe even the white puffs of smoke that goes up. Well, that wine, um, many suspect, was a picture of Jesus' blood being poured out. And then as that steam went up, 
that that pictured how that that was a pleasing aroma, a fragrance to the Lord. And so Paul said, even as I am being poured out as a drink offering, if it's my blood that's being poured out on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm not going to be resentful if I die, you know? Because if, if you're getting serious and, and following in the path of becoming more like Jesus, then even if I have to give up my life, even if I'm martyred for the faith, I will die a happy man. He says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Paul's life, his ambition was the gospel that people would be saved, but not just that they would be saved, but that when they crossed that starting line and they were saved, then they would run the race of becoming more like Jesus. Verse 18, in the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. You know, he's saying, I, I want you all to have this same sort of joy that comes in seeing other people grow in their walk with the Lord. Okay, so as we get to these last few verses, and I will just go over these fairly quickly, um, Paul is talking about two individuals. In verses 19 through 24, he's talking about Timothy. In verses 25 through the last verse, verse 30, he's talking about Epaphroditus. Timothy is a young man that uh, Paul is is discipling, who is uh, a he, he at one time was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he's also you know, kind of somebody that has hung out with Paul and goes on journeys and you know, um, takes letters to churches and, and serves in places at Paul's beckoning. And so he, he begins by talking about Timothy. Let's just quickly go through this. Verse 19, now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be encouraged by news about you. I'm going to send Timothy to you, and I want him to come back and tell me how good things are going with you. Verse 20, for I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. Oh, so Paul is saying that there's a lot of, not just the church at Philippi, but there are ministers that are filled with self-ambition. They don't care about the church. They care about themselves. He said, Timothy's not that way, for I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interest. All seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character. You know his integrity, right? He said, y'all know who he is. He, he is someone that you know full well, and he is a godly man. He's a man of integrity. You know that he's got a great heart. You know his proven character because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go for me. Basically, Paul is saying, I'm going to send Timothy as soon as I know if I'm going to die, be martyred, or if I'm going to go free. And I'm going to wait because I want to send Timothy with that message. Paul is apparently thinking that one way or the other, he's going to know pretty soon what the end result's going to be. And he wanted Timothy to hang out so that Timothy would be the bearer of that news to the church at Philippi. Verse 23 again, therefore I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. And that's what he said in the chapter one, right? He said, hey, for me to depart and be with Christ, that's good. That's that's gain. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to being with Jesus. But he said, but y'all need me to hang out a little bit. And so he, then he came to the conclusion, well, based upon how I think the Lord may be working, I'm confident that I'm going to be released and I'm going to come to you. So that's what he says in verse four. I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will also come soon. 
And now he talks about Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was someone who was a very well-loved and respected man in the church at Philippi. The church at Philippi had sent Epaphroditus to Paul to encourage him, to help him, maybe to send him some monies to help him in his ministry, to provide for his needs. Because the jails at that time, they didn't give you three hots and a cot. You had to take care of yourself. Or really, others had to take care of you because you were in jail. You couldn't take care of yourself. And so the church at Philippi sent Epaphroditus. But Epaphroditus got deathly sick while he was with Paul. And the church at Philippi heard about that. And so Paul is now going to give a few verses about Epaphroditus as this chapter comes to an end. Let's read this. Verse 25. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Okay, so Paul is really laying it on thick, just talking about this guy in glowing terms. And I wonder if maybe the reason why is because Epaphroditus was sent to help Paul, and then Epaphroditus probably ended up feeling like he was a burden to Paul because he got sick, and maybe Paul was helping to take care of him. And Epaphroditus is feeling like a failure. Yeah, I'm just guessing, but I suspect that this probably is true, that Epaphroditus, as he went, wanted to serve and wanted to be the one who was in a position of power blessing Paul, and then he ended up being, because of an illness, the one who was in a position of weakness, and Paul was having to serve him, and Epaphroditus may have been just so embarrassed, thinking, I don't even want to show my face back in the church of Philippi, because I feel like I failed the mission. And so Paul is really buttering in him up. My brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Verse 26. Since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. So Epaphroditus is concerned about the church at Philippi, and he's, he's broken. He feels like I've failed Paul, and now the church at Philippi is, is hearing that I'm sick, and it's messing them up. I, I can't win. So Paul is standing up for Epaphroditus. Indeed, verse 27, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. He said God was merciful to spare his life, not just for Epaphroditus' sake. It's for my sake as well. I couldn't have I couldn't have borne it. I couldn't have it would have been overwhelming, would have been too much. If he came and a love gift from you to serve and to help me in my time of need, and if he died, God was so gracious by making him, getting him well again so that I didn't have sorrow upon sorrow. Verse 28, for this reason, I'm very eager to send him so that you may rejoice again when you see him and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and hold people like him in honor. Oh, Paul is just, he is, he is laying out the red carpet for Epaphroditus as he goes to Philippi. Hold men like him in honor. Why? Verse 30, last verse. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ. He was in the ministry and he almost died in the ministry. Hold somebody like him in high honor. Risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. He said, church at Philippi, I know that you all love me, Paul said. I know you all love me. I know that you want to help me. I know that you want to bless me. And so you sent Epaphroditus. And so he was the one who showed up 
to help me and to serve me and to encourage me when you were not able to come. And I just want you to know that he did that. He fulfilled his mission. So as he comes back, I want you to be happy, celebrate, have a church gathering, a potluck, get together, welcome him back, and hold people like him in high honor. I mean, Paul just has a love relationship with the church at Philippi. Um, They were not perfect, no churches, but he clearly loved this church. And I'm looking forward to getting into the next two chapters as we uh, finish up this book. Uh, There is so much richness in these next two chapters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we thank you uh, that you love us so much. Um, and even as Epaphroditus was, was involved, involved in gospel ministry and almost died, so we are to hold him in high honor, people like him in high honor. Lord, you came to make salvation possible in the first place, and you did die in order to offer salvation. Lord, I pray that we would honor you by how it is that we live our life. I pray that we would honor you by not receiving, merely receiving from you the gift of forgiveness and salvation and righteousness and the Holy Spirit and heaven and everything else that we've got waiting on us, not only that we can enjoy now, but what's waiting on us. But Lord, I pray that we, as we come into greater awareness of what is ours because we have trusted in you and you gave us the grace to trust in you, that we would honor you by giving our life to you and if need be, for you. Lord, you are worth it. Help us to have a mind that sees that. Help us to humble ourselves as we look at your example and serve those around us and be busy, ready to give the gospel to anyone who needs to hear that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope today's episode has helped you to understand and enjoy God's Word so that you can apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit. The Enjoying the Bible podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church in Polk City, Florida. Check us out at fbcpolkcity.com. See you next time. Thank you.